Good evening, everybody. I hope you're having a good week so far. Is, uh, is my mic on? You can hear me? What I would like to do tonight is I'd like to start off with a, a little bit of a devotional. And this, um, this devotional, I haven't given it a title or anything like that, but um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the nature of Christian worship. And this might encourage you or it might challenge you or it might do both. So when I was very young, I was raised in a church where we were taught that um, in worship you should be really quiet. And that it was much more respectful to wear a suit. Or it was disrespectful to use instruments because the instruments detracted from the human voice, which should be the primary agent of uh, worship. Um, later, you know, moving through different kinds of churches, we moved around a lot. I remember being in a church once where we were thinking about uh, moving from a hymn book to a, a PowerPoint. And one argument was we can't put the hymns on the screen because then people would have nothing to hold and they'd start putting their hands in the air. <laughs> so by holding on to the book, this heavy book, you sort of kept people's hands down. Some other things. Uh, I was taught that if you're in a small church, you're in a friendly church. If you're in a large church, it's necessarily less friendly. So it just gets me thinking about all the things that I've been taught over the, over the years about worship, and it causes me to question, like, where do these ideas come from? Are they actually grounded in Scripture, or are they people's opinions, some of which aren't even correct opinions? So one of the ones I wanted to, uh, a couple things I wanted to look at tonight that just kind of push us in the direction of helping us to understand uh, the nature of worship are found in Revelation chapter 4 and uh, Psalm 136. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 4. And again, this is, um, this is apart from the teaching. Just, this is just sort of an, a, a devotional to get us going, but it relates to our subject. And in, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Now pay attention to this language. And day and night... They never what? What's the word? They never stop. They never rest. They never cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If you notice, in, in English here, you're talking about about a dozen words or so. <clears throat> and those dozen words are repeated day and night without end, over and over and over and over and over again. Now, keep your finger there and go to Psalm 136. We're not going to read Psalm 136 in its entirety, but I want you to notice something interesting about Psalm 136. Psalm 136, 
What's interesting about Psalm 136? Okay, over and over again, there's a refrain. His love endures forever. How many times does it appear approximately? 26. 26 times. Same words. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Okay. And what genre is the psalm? Is it a letter? Is it apocalyptic? Yeah, it's a, it's a poetic hymn. So as far as we know, all of the psalms, you could call them songs, were sung. Probably not to the kind of music we're used to. But they were sung uh, by the people of God. And notice the repetition. Notice the repetition here. Notice the repetition in Revelation 4. Now, how many times have we heard? How many times have we also heard? One thing I don't like about modern music is repetition. <laughs> One thing I don't like about modern choruses is the repetition. And I, I scratch my head because I think, well, that's, that's actually modeled in the Bible. Both in the sung psalm and in the eschatological vision of Revelation 4, repetition is something you better get used to because it's part of your eternity. So we're going to be saying the same kind of things over and over and over and over again. And we're not going to do it like the Hindus do, trying to work ourselves up into some sort of a unconscious lather. But this is one other thing that I've been challenged on. Surprise, surprise. I was taught that if there's a lot of repetition, that means it's shallow and flaky. But I look at the Bible, I'm like, actually, biblical worship involves repetition, both ancient worship and eschatological worship involves repetition. So something to think about. Uh, in our lives as worshipers, sometimes we spend too much time looking for a new angle, a new sermon that we've never heard before, a new prayer, uh, new songs. We grow bored. We've sang this song like 15 times now, so we've got to throw it out and find a new one. But in reality, if we focus on the substance of what we're singing, that we can actually find a measure of delight and joy in our worship. One other thing, we won't spend time in the biblical text because you've already seen it, but with regard to uh, numbers, you could look at Revelation chapter 5, and you could also challenge this idea of smallness that many Christians have. If I'm in a small church, it's more worshipful, it's more communal. Well, the heavenly vision is you ain't going to be in a church of 200 people. You're not even going to be in a church of 10,000 people. So you better get used to it. There's going to be millions and millions of people with you in worship for all of eternity. Notice the language, verse uh, 11, and I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels there's myriads and myriads of them, thousands and thousands. Do you think the one angel there's feeling left out? Do you think there's any angel in heaven thinking to himself, man, I wish there was only 30 or 40 of us again? <laughs> so when we get to heaven, there's going to be millions and millions, presumably, of worshipers throughout human history. And uh, I think that's going to be better than anything we've experienced in the here and now. So... Just wanted to challenge us a little bit in terms of how we view worship. As you read the book of Revelation and Scripture as a whole, let it affect and inform your worship. And 
by allowing it to infect, affect, and inform your worship, you may find that some of the things that you taught or some of your attitudes about worship actually are not good attitudes and they're not biblical attitudes. And just two of them we touched down on briefly tonight is biblical worship does involve repetition and biblical worship involves a whole lot of people, right? This past week we were at the Harvest University and preaching was good, but I've heard good preaching before. The worship was good, but I've heard good worship before. The seminars were good, but I've heard good seminars before. But the thing that I was thoroughly impressed with is as soon as you walk in, you're with 2,000 people. We felt very welcome and very much at home. Very much at home, right? My wife's testifying in the back to that. (laughs) And uh, probably more than I've ever experienced in a crowd of 2,000 people. And it reminded me, you know, we got to get this idea out of our head that we can only experience fellowship in our small groups or in a small church. It's just, it's just not true. It has nothing to do with the size of the church. It has to do with the culture of the church. It has to do with how biblical we are in our vision of what the church is and what a worshiping community looks like. Right? So those are some things I was just thinking about this afternoon and I thought I'd share with you. So any questions or comments that you have about um, anything we've talked about up till this point in the book of Revelation, anything you've been reading about, Maybe a comment you want to make to the class, a question, um, a testimony, something that's impacted your life. Wanted to give you a few minutes to talk along those lines uh, before we head back into our study. Yes. Yeah, there, there are various opinions. It's ultimately we don't know. Right. Um, Dan at times might have been associated. There's there's some situations. Okay, one explanation is that Dan was guilty of idolatry, but some of the other tribes were guilty of idolatry as well. So there there might have been something uh, in the mind of the writer that excluded Dan because of that. But really, we're not sure. There's still twelve tribes, but. It's because they give Joseph's name to a tribe as well as, what is it, Manasseh or Ephraim, Manasseh's name to a tribe. Whereas when you count the tribes out in the Old Testament, you would never say the tribe of Joseph. You would always say the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim, the two half-tribes. But in order to make the 12, they delete Dan. But we're ultimately not sure. Yeah. Anything else? Any other ideas? Questions? Yep. It's a great comment. Well, I mean, that, that's a great comment slash observation. And we could, we could talk a lot about the implications of that. 
the most simple being that we probably need to expand or adjust our view of heaven. You know, stop looking at precious moments cards. <laughs> in order to formulate our vision of heaven, um, some of the movies, the, the Christian art throughout, the his, throughout history probably don't reflect really the experience of heaven very well. Um, another comment could be that even beyond our, our vision of heaven, what you're describing affects our view of God. There's something in us that loves to emphasize the soft, the passive, the nice side of God. And we don't always feel all that comfortable with sort of the, the wrathful, the, the holy, the almost frightful side of God. And so I think some of these visions certainly stretch in a positive way our view of who God is and are meant to increase worship, increase our veneration of him, our reverence for him. The third comment I'll make is the word like is an important word. It's like this. It's like that. So the descriptions that John gives us of heaven aren't necessarily the same as what we would, for instance, if you have a throne, you're picturing maybe a throne you've seen on earth, assuming that's what it looks like, or a beast with eyes and assuming that's what it looks like, but it's something different, but something like that. The final comment I'll make is you got to go to Revelation 20, 21 actually, and following, where the, hev the, picture of, uh, the picture we receive of the new heavens and the earth is, is a, a wonderful one. So there's, while those visions that we receive in Revelation, on one hand, are kind of, whoa, I don't, I don't know if I want to go there. I'm not sure they're meant to leave us there. We, we will enjoy it. It will be wonderful. But it'll probably be different than what we've seen at the local Christian bookstore on the shelf and the little pictures and the chubby little angels and all that kind of stuff. Even angels themselves. I mean, cute little Caucasian kids with blonde hair. You know, they look like my son Simon at the age of four. <laughs> Some of these angels have like six wings. Um, I'm not sure what that would look like, but that doesn't look as um, maybe attractive as two wings, the two wings we grew up seeing on angels. So it will be different. It's meant to stretch our understanding of heaven and God. Yeah, good comment. Anything else you've been thinking about? Anybody want the rapture to happen tonight? Yeah. Ready to go? Two, three of you? Three of you are ready? Okay. The rest of you want to live through it? Okay, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Jack's pre-trib. He's ready to go. Okay, we're in Revelation chapter 9. Verse uh, 13 is where we're picking up. I think that's where we left off. Am I correct? Okay. So we, we've come to the sixth trumpet and to a description of four angels that have been released or will be released to uh, kill off one-third of mankind. 
Now, as we go through chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, might even get into chapter 12, one of the balancing acts when you're looking at apocalyptic literature is what do I take figuratively and what do I take literally? I don't know of anybody who would say it's all figurative, and I don't know of anybody that would say it's all literal. So there's always this balancing act. What do I take as figurative and what do I take as literal? We need to ask that question in particular of numbers. We've already discovered that numbers are often figurative in the book of Revelation. For instance, the one Holy Spirit is described as seven, the seven spirits of God. So it's not literally seven, it's one. But why the number seven? You tell me. Why the number of seven? Perfection or completion. So we have to be very careful when we're looking at numbers in particular. Is this literal or figurative? I tend to think that more often than not, the numbers of Revelation are figurative. So tonight when we look at one-third of the earth, for instance being wiped out. I'm not sure it's helpful for us to say, well, is that like Australia and the northern part of Africa? Or would that sort of equate to Europe and Asia? Or is that North America, Central America? Or, or, you know, I'm not sure we should let our minds go there and get wrapped up in too many of those details. But rather, it's probably meant to leave just the general impression that a huge section of humanity will be uh, obliterated. Now, when we are reading numbers that are in sequence, one angel, two angels, three angels, four angels, five angels, then they're probably meant to literally refer to individual angels. But if we're just sort of given numbers like 144,000, well, is that 12,000 times 12, is that a literal number or is it some sort of a vast number? And you can go back and forth on it and probably still wind up in heaven, regardless of your view. Tonight we're going to come across some numbers as well. Probably more figurative in nature than literal, but I could be wrong on that. So the text begins with these words. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. Now this is probably literally a sixth angel. Why? Because we've already encountered uh, five other angels in order. Blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So in Revelation you often hear a voice. And the voice is most often coming from God or from the presence of God, maybe from one of the creatures around God or one of his angels. From the four horns of the golden altar before God. Now, four horns. Well, is there literally like four horns? Maybe, maybe not. One thing we do know from archaeology is that many ancient altars, you've probably seen this in pictures, have horns on the corners of them. So that's the imagery. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. I remember reading this a number of years ago and thinking to myself to the effect, how, how is an angel bound? That's strange language. First of all, angels are spirit beings and the river Euphrates is actually a river, a literal river. You can go there today. So in what way would an angel be bound by the river? And how would an angel be bound? And why would these angels be bound? Why not just, why not just get four angels that have been angeling for all of eternity and send them out? But why, it almost implies, why bind these guys 
potentially for centuries or millennia until such time as they are being released. Now the answer to that probably is not meant is this, that we're not meant to take it literally, super literally. The idea of bounding is probably not meant to be taken in the sense they're literally, literally chained to something, but they were held back and the unbinding is meant to specify they're being commissioned to go out and do what God wants them to do. Now what is it that God wants them to do? So the four angels who had been prepared very specifically for the hour, the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now I want to make some further observations of these verses. The hour, the day, the month, the year is meant to specify the precision of God's purposes and plans. God is very precise. He not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns the calendar. He oversees time. His plans are well laid out, well thought through. God has a specific day, a specific hour, specific minute, second in mind when this is going to happen. In chapter 7 verse 1, four angels were held back from destruction until believers were sealed. We discussed that when we looked at chapter 7 verse 1. Here four more, presumably four other ones, are released to destroy a third of humanity. So how do these four angels function in the book of Revelation? Well, first of all, they are instruments of divine judgment. So these are not the angels sent to guard and guide and protect and deliver messages. These angels function as harbingers of doom. This picture then affects our angelology, our theology of angels. When we, th- when we teach on angels, we could look at passages in the Bible that speak of angels as divine messengers. In fact, the word angel literally means messenger. We get an indication in scripture at times that angels guard over or in some ways superintend God's servants. But angels are also instruments of God's wrath dispensed upon evil. Here, this is how they're functioning. Why the river Euphrates? What do we know about the river Euphrates? From Bibl- not, not today, you know, though, like I don't care about its, its modern usage, but what do we know about the river Euphrates in biblical thought? Um, I don't know about that. I'm just thinking about it from like a military perspective. What do we know about the river Euphrates? Okay, Tigris, Euphrates, traditional location of the Garden of Eden. But what direction is it on a compass from the temple and from Israel? Which way is it though? So if you're in Israel, do you travel north, south, east, or west to the Euphrates? You travel east, right? If you travel west, where do you wind up? Underwater. In ancient times, the people of God perceived that most of their enemies were coming from the east. So the east, Euphrates, was thought of as a place, sort of a place of danger, or a place for a direction at least from which danger came. 
So what is probably going on here is John, the writer, is using not just numerical symbolism, as he often does, but here he's using geographical symbolism to make his point that danger is coming from the east. So you see how in, in apocalyptic literature you can use numbers symbolically, you can use names symbolically. Apparently you can also use geography symbolically. So the east was a place from which threats came. Now that's not to say that no one ever came from the south or the north. But the east is far more expansive because it's a little sliver of land than the north and the south are. So that's probably what's going on here. And these angels are released to kill off then a third of humanity. And the release of these angels coincide with saintly prayers. So in Revelation, we have different situations where um, the saints are praying to God. We have uh, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter uh, 8, verse 3. And the release of these angels also coincide then with the prayers of God's people or a voice from the throne. Um, this description of enemies coming from the east may also stress the holiness of Israel and emphasized in the minds of the believers that Israel was a holy land, a holy territory, and basically outside of that represented ungodliness. Then verse 16 says, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision, those who rode them. They were breastplates, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Now, 10,000 times 10,000 times 2 is 200 million. So that's a pretty hefty number. All of the Allied and Axis forces in World War II totaled 70 million. Now, most people... Uh, most, not all, because we, we, we don't want to uh, disregard God's sovereignty in doing what he wants. But I think most modern commentators would say this is probably not a literal army for this very basic reason. It's a, it would actually be impossible to coordinate 200 million horsemen to come across a small piece of land like that. Okay. But with God's help, maybe that is the case. I have my doubts because I also doubt that given the technology of our generation and presuming it's going to continue to increase and get better, that whenever this war happens, if it's a literal one, that they're going to be riding horses. Unless the horses are figurative of something else. I also want you to notice the colors. Now, you could say if it was like red and blue and green and black, okay, maybe that's literal. But the colors are more non-literal colors. They're not the kind of colors you would expect someone to use to describe a literal horseman. Like you normally you wouldn't say that guy's shirt is the color of fire. You'd say orange. Normally you wouldn't say that person's uh, breastplate is the color of sapphire or of sulfur. You would say red or you would say yellow. 
you normally wouldn't describe someone's helmet if they're wearing a helmet as looking like a lion's head or, I mean, even if they were frothing at the mouth and really mean and vicious, you normally wouldn't describe them as looking like they have fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. So I'm fairly certain, given the nature of the language, that these aren't literal, literally 200 million horsemen. But they could be. The question then is, who are they? Well, many people have suggested that they are some sort of demonic hordes, H-O-R-D-E-S, that the supernatural colors used, combined with their physical descriptions, combined with their sheer numbers, probably refer to some sort of demonic hordes that in some way are unleashed, obviously superintended by God, to wreak havoc on humanity. And again, if if our tribulational view is correct, during the uh, Great Tribulation, if our tribulational view is not correct, at some point in future history that's unspecified. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails, and now it gives us another description that probably doesn't refer to literal warriors, are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So again, it's tempting to try to cross all of our T's and dot all of our I's and try to figure out you know, what country are they going to come from, what do they look like, what kind of horses are they going to ride, what route are they going to take, and of course, many people have done, spent a lot of time trying to take these kind of visionary texts in Revelation and tie them very tightly to literal figures. Um, but I prefer to handle the text a little more loosely, allow it to be a little more pliable in my hands because I'm not, I'm not convinced that we're necessarily to take these in a strictly literal way. But what they minimally are trying to tell us is that in the future, as God unleashes his wrath upon unrepentant humanity, that it's going to be ferocious, it's going to be vicious, it's going to be scary. So back to our brother's comment at the back. He talked about heaven being scary. This is a whole lot more scary (laughs) down on earth. If you think about the catastrophic events that are going to be unleashed upon rebellious humanity, these these are fearful images fearful images that are intended to sort of wake people up, make them aware of the holiness of God, and cause them to sort of stand up and evaluate their lives. Uh, These armies kill one-third of humanity. Now, moving into the last part, it says, now the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Now, what does that tell you about human nature? We're obstinate. We're sinful. We don't learn the lesson. (laughs) Very stubborn. Theologians often describe... uh, human evil using the term total depravity. 
We don't normally say utter depravity. We reserve that language for Satan. He's utterly depraved. Human beings are totally depraved. And the way that's described is that there's nothing in us that naturally, apart from the supernatural, causes us to sort of just gravitate toward God and righteousness and morality. To the point that even the good we do, God says, tells us in Scripture, is polluted. It's polluted and therefore is as filthy rags to God. That's our good works. Because, and that kind of makes sense because you even think about people that don't know the Lord that are great philanthropists, very charitable, very involved, but there's always strings attached. They want a pat on the back. They want their name on a building. They want recognition, right? So it's kind of like, well, you know, thanks for being charitable, but why do you need to be recognized for it? Sometimes people do a lot of good because they want to feel good about themselves because they've maybe done a lot of evil. So the, the doctrine of total depravity is meant to describe this aspect of of humanity that just seems to know how to and is quite comfortable with sin. The Bible describes that in very stark languages in passages like uh, Romans chapter 1, where it discusses human beings suppressing. It's like drowning, suppressing righteousness. Now, what I find interesting is that not only do I think that is what the Scripture teaches, total depravity, but in space and time, we see it. We see it. It's observable. This is a doctrine that's not just understandable from the pages of the Bible, but it's observable in our lives. That people just know how to sin. Some more than others, but we all know how to sin. The Holy Spirit, well, the age of the Holy Spirit would have ended during this period of time. Yeah, good, good point, because there, there's, there's an absence of the church, again, presuming a, a pre-tribulational rapture. There is an absence of the Holy Spirit in the sense that the age of the Spirit has come to an end, but I mean, God is still so omnipresent. Still the yes. The well, the Holy Spirit would be instrumental in, in that, just like I think he would be instrumental in... Yes. Well, he's not gone in the sense of uh, like absent from the world because God is all present. Like the Holy Spirit is, is the instrument of, of conversion even in the Old Testament, even though he doesn't indwell. Um, Well, in the Old Testament, they were saved but not indwelt. Right. Yeah, on but not in, upon but not in. So people who were the martyrs were saved during the time period. Do you think they indwelt the Holy Spirit? Um, I'm not sure they would be indwelt, but I think the Holy Spirit is always, through all time, the instrument of God's regenerating work in anyone's life. So he would still be the instrument that would have regenerated Moses or, you know, Abraham. Or, or any of those people. Even though we're not told that, in New Testament theology we learn more about God, and I don't think it's inappropriate to read it back into the Old Testament. So, But the, the point I'm trying to make is that this illustrates the absolute rebellion of humanity 
apart from the sovereign work of God in one's life. <laughs> I mean, can, can you imagine, uh, we talk about judgment as in removal of blessings. Maybe someone dies, but then we wonder, well, was that a judgment of God or was it just life in a fallen world? But to have 200 million demonic warriors wipe out a third of mankind, everyone's like, we're still not listening to you, God. That's pretty drastic. Pretty drastic. Did you have a question or a comment, James? I really can't every else in your hands I have. But I guess the, the main point, maybe this is more of a comment, that sure. I mean, when I read that people didn't repent, but I think isn't part of the reason why there was destruction to try to get people to, you know, get in our heads, hey, you know, there's worse things to come. Yeah. Smarten up. So that there's still a chance to be saved. Oh yeah. In this time frame, but it's oh, sure. be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of if you believe that the spirit is still very active, but yeah. for anyone who's not, so I guess the, the, my other question would be for those who are believers, they're not part of this sort of destruction that we're living through, right? Well, there's there's the three or four different views. So some would say yes, they're they slash we are living through it. Some would say before it gets real bad, we're gone. And some would say we're we're gone before, right? So there's, there's different views on that. Um, that would be the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib views. Yep. When Donna, you said John was very busy writing down this revelation of Jesus. Yeah. But he must have been devastated when these things were taking place and people weren't repenting and turning to the Lord. We're, I never given much of his reaction to what he's writing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, whenever anybody says anything like that, or I sort of feel that way myself, I always think, and we just got to go there for a moment. Uh, I always think of Ezekiel. And go to Ezekiel chapter 33. And t- tell me if this isn't uh, in some way indicative of, uh, of humanity. So we got to find it here. Okay, so we're going to go to the end of Ezekiel chapter 33. Now keep in mind, he's a prophet, he's a preacher, he's been performing all these crazy acts, warning and reminding people of judgment, you know, get your, basically get your act together, this is what God's going to do. He was probably quite a competent communicator, but here is how he describes his own frustration in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people. Now, the son of man is not Jesus here. It's, it's the prophet, Ezekiel. Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors say to one another, each to his brother. So just pause there for a second. So he's doing his thing, his profiting thing. And now it's describing how people describe or talk about what they've heard from him. And it's actually positive that they like his preaching. So it says, and uh, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So that's what they say. You got to go talk to this guy. He preaches the word of God. And so they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people. So they show up and they hear what you say, but what? They do not do it. 
For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set upon their gain. And then this is how he, he describes their view of the preacher Ezekiel. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs. Now, lustful songs is not meant to be taken in a sexual way, but pleasing, pleasurable songs. They like your music with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. So you, you, like you preach in a way that is as fascinating as good music. That's, what, that's how they describe Ezekiel. For they hear what you say, but they do not do it. That's the second time it's been said. When this comes and come at will, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So this is just another example uh, of the frustration of prophets and preachers throughout all of human history. You preach the word, you preach it clearly, people say, good job, and they go home and don't do it. Right? Now, fortunately, that's not true of everybody, but it often is true. And I'm sure John wrestled with that tension too, because presumably he lived a little longer than when he finally signed off in the last word of the book. And then perhaps tried to wait and see, you know, is this, are people actually going to respond to this even in the here and now? Because even though we're talking about eschatology here, we've got to preach it into the present too. And maybe one of the present takeaways is, you know, we hear the word of God, we hear God's warnings. Do we listen or are we like, oh, well, I got another 10 years to live. I don't need to worry about it yet. Or I'm going to continue on my merry way, living my lukewarm Christian life. And maybe I'll get my act together on my 65th birthday or something like that. Jordan, did you have a comment or question? Yeah. 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 The, people harden their hearts and they suppress truth. They they not only just ignore it, they actually push it away. And and that's if we want to go to a New Testament passage, that would be Romans one, two, and three. Romans one, two, and three. Very harsh language to describe the human condition. Um, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then he goes on talking about general revelation, so they're not without excuse. Verse 21, uh, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but their they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and animals and creeping things. Now go back to Revelation. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. It's the same language of Romans 1. Which cannot see or hear or walk. Now then if you go back to Romans, it talks about sexual depravity, men exchanging relationships with women for with other men, women with women. Well, Revelation, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So it's the same old, same old. We're not even very creative when it comes to sin. Uh, <clears throat> we're doing the same stuff that's always been done. But at its heart, idolatry is anything that exchanges the supremacy of God or takes the place of the supremacy of God in one's life. And then common sins. 
heinous sins, some of them, murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, theft. These are sinful in the eyes of God. So what do we have here? We have, even in judgment, a continuation of rebellion against God. I would just say it's the doctrine of total depravity affirmed through scripture and human experience. And their sin is, you could divide it into two categories, sins against God, directly against God, and sins against your fellow man. So sins against God would be more the idolatry, the sorcery. And sins against your fellow man would be murder, sexual immorality, and theft. So depravity affects this relationship, and it affects this relationship, the vertical and the horizontal. It affects our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. I will make this further comment. One of the reasons why I, I think people in the Western world struggle sometimes with even viewing themselves as sinful is because compared to much of what has taken place in human history, most of us have not experienced heinous sin directed toward us. We've all experienced sin. But most of us have probably, probably not witnessed a murder directly. I would argue that's probably a little bit rare compared to all of human history. Uh, some people might have experienced sexual abuse, but compared to some of the stuff you might have seen in Sodom and Gomorrah <laughs> and in you know, very dark places in the world where there is no Christian church, no gospel preaching, we're probably somewhat immune to it. Uh, you know, we've had things stolen out of our, our van, but compared to some cultures, we've probably had very little things stolen from us. And so because of civilization and law and order, we may sort of get this idea in our head, you know, society's really not that bad. Humans aren't that bad. Then the second thing is we're, we are told, probably more subliminally than not, that we're really not that bad. You know, you can realize your full potential. You can be what you can be. You can accomplish what you can accomplish. You know, this, these kinds of messages come across loud and clear. Emphasis on tolerance, human freedom, personal choice. All these messages subliminally say, Aaron, you're really not that bad of a guy. You know, there's maybe a little bit of God inside there. You just kind of got to realize your full potential. You're actually, you're actually a pretty good dude. And these are the messages we grow up with. So, you know, as recently as two or three weeks ago, I was talking to a young man, born and bred in Windsor, and he says, I just, I just don't see myself as a sinner. Well, if you're not a sinner, then you don't need a savior. So now you got to, like, convince people they're sinners before you can introduce them to the savior. You go to the jails, you don't really have to convince people they're sinners. Just got to convince them that there's a Savior. You go to people that are really broken. Frankly, they tend to be easier to convert because they already know they're sinners. <laughs> but a lot of people in our culture think they're okay. That they're really not you know, as bad as they can be. And it's true that you may not be as bad as you can be, but you are as bad off as you can ever be. Because you're a sinner. So this is how uh, the Bible paints the picture of, uh, of humanity. 
as a, a race of people that are deserving of sin, are deserving of judgment from God. Chapter 10 moves us in the direction, a uh, little bit different direction. Introduces us to an angel with a little scroll. So chapter 10 opens with these words. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So an angel other than the four, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. So again, symbolic language. How do we know that? The word like. Some people have read this and initially thought, well, this sounds a lot like Jesus. And while it is true that some of these depictions are applied to Jesus Christ in Scripture, it would appear that in apocalyptic literature, whenever it says angel, it means angel and never refers to Jesus Christ or the Son of God, at least in apocalyptic literature. So this probably is a reference to an actual angel, not Jesus. Now he had a little scroll open in his hand. Now if you flip back to Revelation 5, 6, and 7, we already learned about a scroll. This starts with chapter 5. When I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on back seven seals, and you remember the whole discussion. Who can open it? Who can open it? And there's silence in heaven. No, nobody can open it. And then Jesus comes and Jesus opens it, right? This is probably not intended to be that scroll. It's a different scroll. It's not the scroll that Jesus Christ opened. But because of what we're about to read in a few moments, it's probably a scroll that is to be understood in the same way as Ezekiel's scroll was understood in Ezekiel chapter 2. So we've got to go back to our friend Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel is uh, asked to perform an act that symbolized God's desire for his people to absorb his word in a greater way than they had. They'd been rebels. They, they obviously weren't spending time in God's revelation. They weren't listening to God's oral revelation, which was still obviously taking place through the through the uh, prophets. So God puts it into the mind and heart of Ezekiel to literally eat a scroll in order to symbolize the need to digest God's word. So imagine if I was preaching a sermon on reading your Bible, getting the word of God to you, and the takeaway was, I want you to all tear out a few pages and eat them right now. You'd probably not want to do that, right? It's not normal to eat scrolls, to eat paper. In this case, it would have been something made out of leather. But it would, it would be a memorable object lesson, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd remember it if you looked around Southwood on a Sunday morning and was eating like the book of John or something. So God comes to Ezekiel. We'll cut in at chapter 2, verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Ah, uh, what's it going to be? Is it a candy? No, and they looked and behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And, it, and he spread it out before me and it had writings on the front, on the back. 
and there were written on its words of lamentations and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll and I will, that I will give you, and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. What do you think that's supposed to symbolize or communicate? Mm. So it's positive. It feeds you, it nourishes you, and it tastes good. But if you look at John's vision, this angel has a scroll, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, and when he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the seven thunders, what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And then um, I want to, I want to, we'll go back, but I want you to jump down to verse nine. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. What's the similarity and dissimilarity to Ezekiel chapter 2? Okay. Okay, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Very good. Absolutely correct, Josie. The Word of God both encourages and challenges. And as it encourages us, we could say it's, it's kind of like something like sweet as honey. But when it challenges us, it can, it can hurt. That is absolutely true. In this context, however, I want to add something else to that. Why in this context is it bitter? Because it's bad news. Because this scroll, which the angel delivers to rebellious humanity, includes not just words of encouragement, but words of woe, words of judgment directed towards them. So back up in the text, he has a little, a little scroll open in his hand. In Ezekiel, he also opens it. He opens the scroll. There's revelation in it. There's something that God wants to say to people. So this is not the Lamb's scroll. I want to emphasize that of Revelation 5. But it is a symbolic scroll picturing the digestion of the word, which is meant to be received, but in this context, which is also going to bring sweetness and judgment. Now he sets his right foot in the sea, his left foot in the land. What this probably is meant to symbolize is that the announcement that this angel 
is going to make, or whatever is written on this scroll that is meant to be delivered to people, is going to be expansive. There's not literally people living in the water, but the fact that he puts one foot on the land and one foot on the sea is probably intended to communicate the idea that this is, this is going to be an expansive message going out through the whole earth. And then he calls out with a loud voice like a lo- lion roaring. Now, whenever the lion appears, it's generally authority or royalty. So this is an authoritative message. He calls out, seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, John says, I was about to write, so he's about to write down whatever he's hearing, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. The question then is, what is it that John heard and why was he commanded from heaven not to write it down? Ultimately, we don't know. The seven thunders may specify the mystery of the announcement that is about to be given, or it may refer to some unrecorded revelation that John alone received. Maybe something to encourage his heart or something to challenge him. So there's two interpretive options there. Back to the text in verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand. What's what's the symbolism attached to right hand? The hand of God is called the righteous right hand, but more cult, humanly speaking, what, what's the symbolism attached to the right arm, the right hand? Take an oath, but what else? S- strength. Most people are right-handed. How many lefties in the room? Put up your hand. Okay, see, it's a minority. One, one, two, three, four, like four or five. Some of you don't know. Your hands are up and down. You're not sure. <laughs> you're, maybe you're amb- How many ambidextrous people? If you don't raise both hands, you're not. <laughs> but the right hand is like your hand of strength for most people. So right hand in scripture generally means strength. The righteous right hand of God. It's not like God's got a little bicep on the left and a big one on the right. But it symbolizes power. Reminds me of Lady in the Water. You know the guy that used to work out on one side? You ever see that? Do you see that? One guy. Okay, one guy watches good movies. Anyway. (laughs) And the angel whom I saw standing on the land raised his right hand. So there's, again, power. So think of the descriptions of power. Voice like a lion, thunders, standing on the land, standing on the water, right hand in the air. These are all meant to generate this idea of the power of God. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever. Who is that? The one that created the heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. So again, God is described here, obviously, as eternal, as creator, very specifically creator of everything on the land, creator of everything in the sea, creator of everything in the heaven, so much revolution, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as it was announced to his servants, the prophet. Now, there is something else, I think uh, Joyce or someone might have called this out, that's significant about the right hand. And that is, it was part of 
Jewish, Jewish oath-taking uh, procedures. So let's look quickly at Deuteronomy 32, verse 40. I think I got the right one here. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. And then uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand, uh, in this case, and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time uh, that when the scattering of the power of my holy people comes to an end, all these things shall be finished. So it appears that the raising of at least the right hand, and in this situation even the left, was tied to uh, the taking of oaths. Verse 7 That in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. So this mystery is some sort of a mystery of full disclosure for God's purposes to humanity. So all that we know about God now is not all that we one day will know about God. God has not revealed everything that there is for us to know yet. There's revelation yet to come. He's announced some of that through his servants, the prophets. He will continue to do that. And here, back in the biblical text, in this context, the idea that that time is fast approaching, fast coming to an end. And then verse 8, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And this is, we've already read this little section. Then he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey to my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So here John moves from observer to full participant. Up till this point in Revelation, he's mostly just observing. But now he's participating by eating the word of God and by being commissioned, if you'll notice the tail end of verse 11, to prophesy as one of God's messengers. So again, why was it sweet and bitter? Well, as God's word, it brings joy. But the judgment of it also brings woe and wrath. Now, when we think of wrath, of course, the wrath that John was prophesying about, or at least had experienced, was not a wrath directed toward himself. To whom was it directed? Unbelievers, mean people. <laughs> mean people. <laughs> Yes, mean people. Very good. But notice, even though that wrath is not directed towards him, he doesn't feel good about it. And I think there's probably something there, a takeaway to this effect, that God's wrath against the unrighteous shouldn't make us feel good either. When I mean, there is a sense in which that should be disturbing because it could be us and it should be us. John is then called to prophesy and 
the question now is, as we move past chapter 10 into verse 11, sorry, chapter 10 into chapters 11 and following, you know, how much of that is John's prophecy? Not all of it, but some of it, especially from chapter 12 onward, may, may be intended to be taken as John's prophecy now in light of what he's had revealed to him. John's warning of opposition and hardships that people will face if they turn away from God. Or if you're a mid- or post-tribulationalist, maybe those that message of woe is directed towards God's people to encourage them that even though they will suffer, that God will still have his hand on them in some way. So, let me say that one other way and then we'll take a break. The message of woe is either exclusively directed towards the unbeliever, which would be the case if the church has been raptured, or the message of woe may be a more generalized woe that all people will experience, both believers and unbelievers, during a period of great tribulation, (coughs) depending on your eschatological scheme. Okay? So let's pause there and take a break, and then we're going to talk about the two witnesses, one of the most difficult passages in Revelation to interpret. Revelation chapter 11. (laughs) Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. Have you all heard of the two witnesses? Probably all heard of it. It's, It's one of those aspects of Revelation that people even outside the church have heard. Like most people have heard 666 or the Antichrist or the 144,000, or the two witnesses. And that's you know, all they know about the book of Revelation. So this is one of those past... Sorry? Uh, the beast. They don't say the, word the beast. Um, I, mean, I would have to check. Off the top of my head, I'm not sure. But um, the two witnesses is chapter 11. It is kind of difficult to interpret for two reasons. First of all, there's a, there's a flow back and forth between the literal and the non-literal in terms of language. So literal, you got altar, temple, references to Jerusalem, most likely. And then you have some other stuff that's very non-literal. Secondly, trying to understand its placement. So whenever you're looking at a passage of scripture, you're always looking at its placement in its broader context. And it's difficult to understand how these two witnesses function in the placement. So up till now, you know, we've been going through the trumpets, the angels. There's a bit of a sequence to them. There's a little bit of a parenthesis before the the seventh trumpet, but it's kind of sequential. Whereas the description of the two witnesses is kind of difficult to know where it fits. So that's why there's, we're going to be using a lot of this might mean, this may be the case kind of language. <laughs> so I'll do my best, but uh, you may go away more confused than you came in. <laughs> so it starts out this way. Then I was giving a, given a measuring rod like a staff. Now, a measuring rod. Nowadays, we have these funky little things called tape measures. Or if you're really cool, laser tape measures. You measure things using lasers. 
But they didn't have things like that, so they would develop standard lengths, and that's what you would use to measure things out, your building. And one of them was a measuring rod. Well, a measuring rod is about the equivalent of 9 to 10 feet long. So he's given a measuring rod, and he was told, rise and measure the temple of God. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 40, through to Ezekiel chapter 48, there's a lot of discussion there about the measurements of a future temple, probably after the destruction of the temple that would have existed in that day. So similar language. So he's probably drawing imagery, I guess is what I'm trying to say, from what he's uh, read in Ezekiel's prophecy. So he takes this measuring rod. He's told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. I want you to keep that phrase in mind. Leave it out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Clothed in sackcloth. So take your calculator. Punch in 1,260 and divide it by 30. And what do you come up with? Go ahead. Somebody do it. you got to look at these things, right? Don't make me do it for you. Come on. Three and a half years or 42 months, right? Okay. Thank you. we got the accountant up front here. So the, the 42 months... And the 1,260 days are the same. Can we agree on that? If you go with like a 30-day month. So it's just two different ways of saying the same thing. One in days, one in months. So here's some questions, just as we move into this. Is this intended to be some sort of a symbolic future event or a literal future event or something somewhere in between? And then again, how does it fit? How are we to understand the two witnesses and how they fit into the overall book and the flow of chapters 10 and chapters 11 and into chapter 12? Here are some thoughts and comments. If it's literal, then it's fairly clear that the details of the text outline certain events that relate very specifically to what people group? The Jewish people. How do we know that? You have to know a little bit about the way the temple was set up. But how do you know that? Glenn? Okay, very good. So, even in the old, the previous temples, right? So, if you look at the text, where that would be said, maybe not as clearly as Glenn has said it, or other passages say it, but it says, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. Now, who are the nations? The Gentiles. So, even in the temple of Jesus' day, when you went to the temple, it, it was segregated. There would be an outer court for Gentile converts to worship the true God. 
and there would be an inner court for Jewish believers to worship the true God. So outer, inner. So you've got to sort of think of it that way. Now, the reason why this, if it's to be literal, f- seems to focus in on the Jews is because he asks them to measure it, but he's focusing in on the Jewish part of the temple, if you will. So he, it's almost like he's disinterested in the Gentile area. Secondly, the language is Jewish. Now, when I mean language, I mean temple of God language, altar language, court language. This is the language of Jewish worship, of the Jewish temple. Some, however, believe that this is meant to be taken all very figuratively, and it has nothing to do with the literal temple, a rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, or anywhere else for that matter, but it's meant to sort of, in a very elastic way, be stretched and just relate very generally to uh, some futuristic event for, for all people who are sort of, quote-unquote, in the temple in the sense of true believers. Now, basically, the view that says, no, this really isn't about Jews, this is just kind of about the church, their argument, in, in my view, is boils down to one fundamental idea. If it's about the Jews and only the Jews, how do we reconcile it with the passages before and the passages after, which seems to focus on humanity as a whole? So I'm going to say that again so that'll sink in. So moving up to chapter 11, Focusing on global judgment. How do we know that? One foot on the land, one foot on the sea, all the nations, global judgment. After that, discussions about global judgment in chapter 12 and following. So advocates of the, no, this is the church, this is not Israel, basically say to take it as the church fits better with the overall flow of revelation because the flow of revelation in this section at least tends to be speaking of everybody. Now, I'm not convinced that's a particularly good argument, but that is one of the arguments that's presented. I think there's some evidence here that this probably is to be taken as some sort of an event that literally, or at least in some partially literal, literal way, will take place in the, in the Jewish context in Jerusalem and involve potentially the rebuilding of an actual temple. So just some some things from the text that uh, um, push us in that direction. It it uses Jewish language. Um, It seems to depict the future of Israel before her uh, full regeneration, which if you factor in the 144,000 text, it would appear in the broader context of Revelation that God does have some sort of a futuristic focus on bringing Jews back to worship the true and living God and his son Jesus Christ. Uh, Those that um, look at the promises that God has made to Israel in the past uh, will often say, and I think there's some truth to it, that part of God's promises to Israel was to work literally with them as an ethnic group 
and that some of the promises that he gave to Abraham relate very specifically to the Jews. And while we may be beneficiaries of some of those covenants, there, there does tend to still be a very Jewish focus or Jewish element to some of the promises that God has made uh, to his people. Another argument is based upon the whole 42 or 1260 language of the text. I'm going to go to Daniel chapter 9. We spent some time there earlier in the course. And I mean, Daniel chapter 9, I'm not, I'm not suggesting is super easy to understand. But Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 does talk about this period of seven, which seems in the, in the Daniel 9 text to be thrown into the future. So in verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and be rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be 70 weeks. Now, uh, here's where... You know, I'm, I, I got to sort of summarize things, but I got to tell you enough to make sense out of this, even though we could spend you know weeks discussing it. So how do I put all this together? The Daniel 9 prophecy was delivered during the time that the Jewish people were in captivity in Babylon. We know that for a fact. We know the year, the date. We know the dates of the decrees that would release them from captivity. We know how many years there would be between that and the coming of Christ to the destruction of the temple and so forth. And if you do the research on this, and he talks about the seven, 70 weeks, or probably to be understood as 70 seven-year periods, there will be seven weeks times seven, 49 years, first, 62, it will be rebuilt again with squares and moat. So if you do the math on that, it dates to the time when the temple's being rebuilt, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, now that word anointed is wrapped up in the Jewish word, that, or the Greek word Christ. The word Christ means anointed one, so presumably this is a reference to Christ, will be cut off and have nothing. So this is a prophecy spanning from the time of the Jewish captivity through to the crucifixion of Christ. And if you chalk out the years, it actually matches up. And the people of the prince who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after he's cut off, which would have been in and around you know, 30 AD, 40 years later, the sanctuary and the temple is destroyed. We know the temple was destroyed in 70 Okay. Then it says, its end shall come like a flood, and to the end shall there be war. So this is an unspecified period. This could be a week, this could be a million years. But I think it's best to take this as now, from the time of the destruction of the temple until the end. Okay. All of this period of time is referred to as this, this leading up to the, the period that follows the 69 
of the 70 weeks. Desolations are decreed. And then it says, and he shall make a, and he, now it doesn't say who the he is, but it just says he, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So that's one seven-year period. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So that would be three and a half years, 1260 days or 42 weeks. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, you go back to Revelation. Again, we need to handle that carefully because there are different opinions on it. But if you have a study Bible, and I just look down here now, there's a study Bible that gives four different views as to how you can understand those weeks. So admittedly, there's different views. As I've studied it out in far more detail in the past, when I was sort of really into it and picking it apart, the, the dates of the decree to release Israel and coming to the time of Christ actually did line up with the biblical record. It seems most sensible to me that that 70th seven is a delayed seven-year period that is yet future. So then when I come to this text and I see the three-and-a-half-year language, I, it takes my mind back to Daniel chapter 9. And it says, okay, maybe what, whatever they're trying to record that's taking place with these two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 actually ties in in some way to Daniel chapter 9. Like, that just makes sense to me. So this, the point is, is that this matches exactly the, the halfway mark or at least one half of the 70th seven that is recorded in Daniel chapter 9. Now, it could be this three-and-a-half-year period, this 42-month period, could be the first half or it could be the second half. But it does talk about a three-and-a-half-year period. Now, since the second half is framed in the Bible as being worse than the first half, and the events surrounding the execution of the witnesses is bad, it may be best to take the two witnesses' ministry as beginning sometime in the second half, or at least at the midpoint of this future 70th seven of Daniel's prophecy. So again, again, I want to be tentative about this, but I think that from Revelation 4 onward, we are in the tribulation period. It's describing the events of the, tribu the great tribulation period. And that in and around the halfway mark, there's two witnesses, unnamed witnesses, who will come and perform certain acts. So let's find out what they're going to do. But before we do that, I want to look at two descriptions of them and try to understand what those descriptions mean. So verse 4, th these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, this could mean a number of things, but I would just propose that a, 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 a common sense interpretation would be to say, if you got a lampstand, you put oil into it. So if you got a lampstand, you put, let's say, olive oil into it, and you light it, and it sheds light into darkness. So perhaps the reference to olive trees is meant to be understood as trees that produce oil that provide for lamps. There's two of them, so there, therefore there's two lampstands. And one of the functions of these men is to shine light, to somehow spread truth, which ties into their description as witnesses, who are people who are supposed to shine light, who are supposed to bring revelation in some way, shape, or form. 
So describing them as uh, like olive trees or like lampstands might be intended to capture their sense of mission as witnesses on God's behalf. Now, those that prefer a non-literal view, excuse me, have uh, variously described these two witnesses as just two groups of people who will represent God well in the future. So kind of vague, but that's one, in, one other interpretation. Some have gone so far as to describe them as two principles of righteousness or justice. Others have described them potentially as uh, law and prophets. So through the law and the prophets of God, God speaks truth. Could be. Some see some symbolism in the fact that there was two of them. There are two witnesses in Old Testament law. You had to have at least two witnesses in a trial. You couldn't just take one person's word for it. You're supposed to have two. So there could be some tie in there. Not convinced, but those are possibilities. Verse 5, and if anyone should harm them, these guys have power. And the power is described as fire pouring from their mouths that consumes their foes. If anyone should harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So these, these images now, the question is, well, now, are these literal? I mean, if these are literally two witnesses, is, do they literally go around, like, barfing out fire on people? Or is this one of those situations where there's some literal aspects and some non-literal aspects where maybe there literally are two witnesses, but they're not literally shooting out fire. There's some other way that they enact judgment. Again, this is the, the constant struggle in apocalyptic. What do we take literally? What do we not take literally? I'm not sure that it affects the takeaways because the takeaways are these guys are powerful. They're serving on God's behalf. They're prophesying and don't mess with them. I think I told you the story several years ago of a young man that visited the church I was pastoring and not this one who claimed that he had received a revelation from God and was one of these witnesses and that he had found the other one in downtown Windsor. And I don't remember his name, but I remember the other witness's name was Trevor. I just thought, oh, it's interesting, Trevor the witness, but the... Uh, one of the past, there was two of us talking to him, and I remember the other pastor saying, well, if you're one of the witnesses, we'll take you down to the Detroit River, and you can turn it into blood, and then we'll believe you. <laughs> anyway, it, they are described either figuratively or literally as having those kinds of powers. So how do they function then? They function in apocalyptic literature as divine agents to dispense divine wrath. So they're divine in their commission, and they're divine in their mission to dispense wrath upon the earth as servants of God. So they're good guys. They're good guys. Lots of interpretations as to who these two witnesses may be. Here are some of them, just to fill you in. Some see them as Israel and the church throughout history who have been used by God to preach his truth. So this would be this would fit into the, the the views that don't believe in a literal tribulation or literal literal millennium, right? But they're they're viewing this in a more idealistic way, trying to 
extract broad truths, but not necessarily trying to put it in any sort of a futuristic timeline. So Israel and the church, that's view number one. View number two, that it's Israel and the word of God. So Israel's one, the word of God is the other. View number three is that uh, this, this could be Moses and Elijah. Why? Because Moses and Elijah are often tied tightly to God's plans. For instance, in Matthew 17, 3, they're mentioned in the transfiguration of Christ. View number four, that they're Enoch and Elijah. Now, why do you think Enoch and Elijah might be, might have been selected as possible candidates? Yes, because they're the only two that, yeah, the, I don't know if you heard that, that, they're the only two that were taken up and never died. So, for instance, if it was Moses and Elijah, well, Moses died. So does Moses die twice? Because in a moment we're going to see that the witnesses die again. So therefore, some have suggested, well, if these are two historical figures, then Enoch and Elijah would be good candidates because they never died the first time, so they can die the second time, or die, die the first time during the tribulation period. So that's, that's an interesting view. Another view is, um, this would be number five, I guess, that there are simply two unnamed people. So that's, you know, pretty profound view. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two unnamed people, <laughs> or uh, a sixth view is that they represent the just broadly speaking the broader witnesses of God either during the tribulation or now. So they don't rep they represent a broader group and not literally just two. So they just represent the people of God. If you're a tribulationalist during the tribulation, or if you view these events as somehow part of this age, people in the here and now, like me, like you, who are trying to testify on God's behalf. So obviously you have views with greater specificity and lesser, more specific and less specific. We know in this text they're not named. Uh, it seems to me that they probably are two literal men who come on behalf of Christ during the tribulation to preach and teach, and they will have great power. I don't know who they are. I'm not sure it's necessary for me to know who they are, but they will in some way represent the purposes of God. But their, their coming will be significant because in their coming, there will be a marked change in the way the world accepts or rejects the things of God. Because it says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them. Now, let me just pause there. We'll get into this a little bit in future classes, but there's probably two individuals that are called the beast in Revelation. This would be Satan. The other would be what is often called, a, called the Antichrist or one who is opposed to Christ. Uh, the one that arises from the bottomless pit here is probably Satan because previous we identified one who was put in the pit or went into the pit as Satan. Also in Revelation 20, one who's bound in the abyss, Satan. So this is probably Satan here. When they finish their testimony, Satan or the beast arises from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And then it says their body will, bodies will lie in the streets of the great city. Now the great city is probably to be understood as Jerusalem because it's a Jewish readership. 
reading this. And they, when they think great city, they ain't thinking Ephesus, thinking Jerusalem. That is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. Now, this is interesting because why would you refer to the great city of Zion, if that's what he has in mind, as by the names of a city and a country that were historically associated with evil? Again, probably to underscore what has been talked about in the previous chapters about how depraved people have become, even in the place that's supposed to represent the things and purposes of God. Jerusalem, a lot of evil has taken place. I mean, if you go to Israel, Israel today, it's, it's, it's just like Windsor in the sense, or if you go to Jerusalem today, it's just like Windsor. There's, there's atheists, there's believers, there's, there's everything. So this city had drifted so far from God that now this city known as Zion or Jerusalem is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So the fact that Jesus was crucified there, he wasn't crucified in Ephesus. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem. So again, pretty strong evidence that this is taking place in the location that we know as Egypt, or sorry, as Jerusalem. They are killed, um, and then it says, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Here we have an uprising of people from all over the world who globally will take an interest in these two witnesses and actually party and get excited about the fact that they're dead. Much has been made of trying to interpret the three and a half days. Perhaps the simplest explanation is simply to contrast three and a half years with three and a half days and say that while they prophesied for a lengthy period of time, they really only were abused for a short period of time. So the, the, maybe we shouldn't make too much of the three and a half. It's just a short period of time, but maybe there is some symbolism there. We're not sure. But what we do know is that uh, these two figures, if they are indeed literal figures, their death will make evil happy. The wicked will actually celebrate their death and the... The, the nature of the rejoicing is, is going to take place either on uh, a global scale or in Jerusalem by representatives of many nations. So three and a half days, three and a half years, they will be silenced, but compared to their ministry, their silence will only be temporary. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven. There's that voice from heaven again, authority, saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, so their ministry's done. They don't punch back at this point. They just, they're gone. And their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
So the result of their ascension is that it is witnessed, unlike Jesus' ascension by his um, disciples, this is witnessed on a global level, or at least by representatives uh, from all around the world. And there's two responses, terror and glory. The glory might be from believers who are present that witness it, or it might be from those that are convinced by the event of the power of these men and are converted and give glory to God by surrendering themselves to God. Then it says, the second woe has passed, and behold, the third woe is soon to come. These men are divinely resurrected and called to heaven. A tenth of the city is ruined, 7,000 dead. Very round numbers, by the way. Literal, not literal, don't know. But a lot of people are wiped out during this event. And what this, the, the witnesses then serve to do is they push humanity yet a step closer to the end of all things. They move along God's timeline. So I will say then that if we're correct that this is taking place during the tribulation, during the tribulation period, there will be gospel proclamation. Here by two witnesses, people will be given an opportunity. The hardness of humanity's hearts will be demonstrated and that the vast majority will want them dead. When they are killed, they'll rejoice with glee. God's power will be demonstrated over them by bringing them back to himself. And through the observation of that event, either believers or immediate converts will give glory to God because of the witness of the two witnesses. Then the, the latter part of chapter 11 is about the seventh angel blowing his trumpet. So we've been moving step by step through these seven trumpets. There's been parentheses or uh, extra information in between like the two witnesses, but we're back to the seventh trumpet now. Verse 15, the seventh angel blows his trumpet. There's loud voices in heaven. The kingdom of God has become, or sorry, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our, our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Here we have a pairing, a coming together of two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. But in actual fact, the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of God. Here is where we have lots of debates among theologians as to what is the kingdom of God. In the old days, it was the, the lines were drawn in cement. The amillennialists said the kingdom of God is now. The pre-millers said the kingdom of God is all future. Most of us today believe the kingdom of God is now but not yet. What do we mean by that? From the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Christ's kingship was established, made evident, made obvious to the world. And in that sense, Christ is king, present tense. No question about it. However, the fullness of his kingdom is not yet evident. The fullness of his kingdom is not yet recognized. So there is a sense in which we know Christ is king, but your neighbor might not. We know that everything is kingdom of God. But people may not realize that yet. So there is a now but not yet tension to the kingdom of God. 
But in the future, the kingdom of God will in its fullest way encompass all things and it will be made obvious and no one will be able to say, well, this is man's territory or the devil's territory and this is God's. The kingdom of God will be made evident. It will be culminated, we say, in all of its fullness. And here we have that vision of Christ's kingly reign coming to pass. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Again, I don't think that means that it's not the kingdom of our Lord now, because there is a sense in which it is now, but the fullness of it is future, where Christ will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, Give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Begun to reign. Does that mean he's not reigning now? Obviously, he is reigning now. But again, the fullness of his reign will begin in the future or the full manifestation of it more accurately. If you are a millennialist, and if we are in the tribulation right now in chapter 11, we're not yet in the millennium. The millennium is going to be described in chapter 20. So one other interesting question is, well, if Christ begins to reign now, after these witnesses, then what about the millennial period? Because the millennial period is not really, I mean, it's the reign of Christ on earth, but there's more to come in the new heavens and the new earth. The millennial reign of Christ is only a thousand years. The new heavens, the new earth is forever and ever and ever and ever. So again, we have this layering in scripture of now, but not yet, now, but not yet. In the now, the kingdom of God, God is ruling on his throne. The kingdom of God is now. In the future, it's going to be greater. Come the events of the tribulation, the kingdom of God is going to come to earth. That's going to extend through the millennial reign of Christ on earth. But in the new heavens and the earth, it's even going to be more evident of the kingship of Christ. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. Two things I want to touch down on before we finish up tonight. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to flip ahead in chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15 and realize, you know what, actually, we're a number of chapters away from the end, end, end. There's still more to come. So why is God talking about, it almost sounds like in chapter 11 that we're, we're finally done all this judgment stuff. That everything that's taking place in the tribulation is over and that you'd almost expect in chapter 12, I mean, we're, we're getting into heaven now, right? Why then does the language of chapter 11 sound like the language of completion when again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize, well, it's clearly not complete. I got a few more chapters to go through before I get to the end, end, end. And the 
the way we should handle that is by going back and thinking about the kind of literature we're in. Sometimes revelation is linear. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you get the summary before the events that actually lead up to the event that is being summarized. I'll say that again. Sometimes you get the summary before you work through the rest of the events that lead to the summary of the event that's being summarized. So this is an, just an interesting aspect of apocalyptic literature. It sort of brings you to the end. It spills the beans. It tells you, hey, God's going to win. But then you sort of got to put that in your pocket and endure a bunch of other stuff before you actually find out how and when he's going to win. So that's just an anomaly in apocalyptic literature. You know, very, very roughly, it's kind of like the Christian experience. We know the end. We know where we're going. We... We know about eternal life. We've got the, the final chapter already written in our hands. There's no surprises. But now we've got to go through all the events of life before we fully realize that. That's the Christian experience. And on a literary level, I think that's what we're seeing here, where we get the summary, but then we've got to go back and find out about a bunch more events that lead to the events that the summary is trying to capture. Let's talk just briefly about the final verse there, the Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. You read that, you're thinking, oh, that's where the Ark of the Covenant went. So Indiana Jones, it didn't actually find it. Well, we need to be careful. This is probably not to be taken as the literal Ark of the Covenant. The reason for that is because we know from elsewhere in Scripture that the temple itself or the tabernacle that preceded it was meant to be a human pattern of something that was glorious and heavenly. So we could say then that there's two arcs of the covenant, there's two temples, there's two holy of holies, uh, there's two lavers, there's two altars, etc. So just like we don't think about the altar of God earlier in the book of Revelation as literally the one that uh, the, the Levites were sacrificing on that was somehow transported to, to heaven, so this is probably not literally the Ark of the Covenant that would have been carried by the people of God on earth, but this is the full, the real, that was prefigured or pre-shadowed by the less real here on earth. And just as the heavenly temple, uh, sorry, the earthly temple is supposed to typify heaven, so the, coven the Ark of the Covenant on earth was supposed to typify something about heaven. And what does the Ark of the Covenant typify? You tell me. If you get the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, God's faithfulness, that's part of it. But there's something even greater. Power. Presence. Dwelling place. And holiness. So we'll just summarize that. Holiness and presence. So heaven is holy. It's the presence of God. And so as... <coughs> the temple in heaven is open, John catches a glimpse of what he calls the, the Ark of his Covenant. And it is probably intended simply to symbolize the righteousness or what we call the holiness of God and his full presence. And then, of course, that's surrounded by all that scary stuff we read about earlier, flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, which, again, aren't meant to want to chase you out of heaven, 
but to highlight the absolute sacred and holy nature of God compared to all of the stupidity and wickedness that we've read about on earth. So that brings us to the, um, to the end of, uh, of chapter 11. Okay, and to the end of our class. So we'll look forward to uh, seeing you all here next week. Have a good evening. <laughs>